Good morning, and welcome to the radio broadcasts of the Brinesburg Missionary Baptist Church. Are weary, I need you. 
truth is you know what tomorrow brings. There's not a day ahead you have not seen. So when all things be my life and breath, I want what you want more than
stand with us as we sing these two songs an older and a newer song work together to proclaim how great how mighty how wonderful is our God can you say amen to that this morning let's praise him together here we go the splendor of the King
many of you, I know this is a different age and time, but how many of you still handwrite, let, handwritten letters to people? Anybody here still do that? Good. I know it's all texting and emailing these days. The art of writing letters has disappeared. This song I want to share with you goes back to the days of the handwritten letter. Talk, its title is called Sincerely Yours. And the question this morning, have we made ourselves to God, that we said to him, Lord, I am sincerely yours. to you a letter knowing even now you know what's on my mind but I think perhaps it might make me feel better if I see myself here written in a As I close, I see a phrase I took for granted, and it leaps out as I see it written there, and as the truth of it begins to become planted, these two words have become my heartfelt Sincerely yours, Lord, I sign my life to you, sincerely yours, with a strong and honest wish to be the best that I can be at what I am without a fault for me, Lord. Sincerely yours Without a trace of selfish lines Sincerely yours Now until there is no time Please make my life Become a letter you can keep Never Sincerely yours, sincerely yours, sincerely Today you'll be listening to the message preached by our pastor, Brother Brad Walker, during our Sunday morning worship service. May God bless you as you listen to his message. Amen. What a great reminder. Thank you, Brother Rockney. You will this morning turn with me again 
to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking again, taking a little bit of a step back, looking at verses 4 through 7 again this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Lord, Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to join together in worship. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that we've already had to lift up our hearts and our voices to to be able to spend time in prayer and giving. And now as we open up your word, I pray that you speak to our hearts. Remind us of the difference that you have made. Remind us of where we came from and where we are now in you. And Lord, I pray that if I even have one friend today who doesn't yet know you, and they're here today, and they're listening, Lord, help their hearts to be convicted of sin and their great need for you, and help them to recognize that salvation is that free gift from you if they will only receive it by faith. Lord, I know that you are going to do a great work in our, in our midst this morning, and we're going to give you the honor and the glory and the praise for it in advance. And I'm a, I'm a very weak vessel, so hide me behind the cross that only you'd be seen, only you'd be heard. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In verses 1 through 3 last week, I told you we see our doomed condition as sinners. We see the condition that we are in uh, outside of Christ. That we weren't just a little messed up. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were doomed to an eternity in hell. And I told you that I believe that my two favorite words in all of Scripture may be, But God. Because God does something in those two words that changes not just our destiny, but our destination forever. And so I'll just tell you this morning that I am very thankful that as a nine-year-old little boy that God chose to bud into my life. And he chose to do a work that has changed me forever. And so I, I, as I wanted to move forward, but as I was looking at this scripture this week, I just felt like we need to go back. And we need to just recognize what a wondrous thing it is. That but God. So if you will please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Let's look at verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2 once again this morning. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come that he might shew the exceeding riches of his, of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. You may be seated. What a powerful passage of Scripture that we have before us this morning. And the first thing I want you to look at is there in verses 4 and, th- is four and 5 is divine intervention. Notice God's intervention is personal here. We see the words, but God, and they're filled with glory and power and meaning. In those two words, just six little letters, one conjunction and, worse, and one personal noun may just be the greatest words in all of Scripture. Those two words tell us where salvation originates. It doesn't originate in us. It originates in the person of God himself. That he is the one who came after us. Those two words tell us who initiated our salvation. God always makes the first move in salvation because the lost sinner is incapable of making the first move on his own. Those two words mark the difference between life and death, between life and turmoil and life and peace, between life of sin and sorrow and a life lived to the glory of God, between salvation and damnation, between heaven and hell, but God. Take a moment to contrast the truth of verses 1 through 3 with the words, but God. Take a a moment to walk through the Word of God, and see where the personal intervention of God made an eternal difference in the lives of men and women mentioned throughout its pages. Consider a man named Abram who was pulled out of paganism and made to be the father of the nation of Israel. Take, for instance, the life of Jacob who was born a liar, born a trickster, and became the father of, of the children of Israel. Notice, the, the, as we saw in Sunday school last week, the life of, of a pagan prostitute named Rahab, 
who but God changed her life and she was put into the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Take, for instance, a little shepherd boy by the name of David, whose life but God And he became the king of Israel. Notice the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They seemed to be destined for death, and yet but God, and he walked in the fire with them. Notice a man by the name of Saul, who was a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ, but God. And he became the greatest missionary the world has ever known. Praise God, he took a personal interest in me. Again, I praise God that as a nine-year-old boy sitting in Hardin Baptist Church during a youth revival, God butted into my life and he changed everything because I wasn't looking for a life change as a nine-year-old boy. I wasn't looking for a savior. I I wasn't looking for anything that night but just to have a good time with my friends. I thought it would be a, a good time out there. But I praise the name of God that he had other ideas for my life. And he wanted to do something greater than for me to just have a good time for one night. Thanks to his personal intervention, I'm saved. But the question comes, what about you? Do you have that that time where you can say, I know the time that God butted into my life. That he came in, and even though I wasn't looking for him, he came in and he showed me my sin and my need for him. Can you praise him for personal intervention in your life this morning? But also God's intervention is precious. Look at the next phrase. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Let's take a moment to think about what Paul is saying here. He mentions the fact that God is rich in mercy. The word rich refers to an overabundance. That is, without measure, is is unlimited. This characteristic suggests that God possesses an abundant, a measureless, an unlimited quantity of mercy. The word mercy refers to goodness or kindness towards the miserable and afflicted, coupled with a desire to help them. We know that our Savior was marked by his mercy while he walked on this earth. That he was different than the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he showed mercy. Many times the Bible says that he was moved with compassion as he looked upon those who were helpless in their afflictions and in their sins. On those occasions, the Savior's mercy moved him to reach out in love and to do something to alleviate the suffering of those who felt of whom he felt mercy towards. And he does the same thing towards us in salvation even today. Look at verses 1 through 3. And you see that there was never a more afflicted or miserable group of people than those described in those verses. Brinesburg, that's talking about us this morning. In spite of the wicked fallen condition in spite of of the continual rebellion in spite of the sinfulness and immorality and depraved state he looked upon us in mercy with with a heart of mercy and he came after us in his mercy he was moved to do something about it to do something for us you see mercy has the idea of not receiving what we deserve so many people say well i i I just want to, to get what i deserve church you don't want what you deserve You do not want hell. You do not want eternal damnation. You want his mercy. And that is what he has shown to us. In the Lord's mercy, he turned his wrath away from the children of wrath. And he extended to them, rather, forgiveness and salvation. We do not get what we deserve. We get mercy. He doesn't give us the judgment that we deserve. The Lord's mercy for the sinner flows out of his love for the sinner. Paul calls it his great love. What kind of love are we talking about? Throughout Scripture, we see that God's love is eternal. We see that God's love is sacrificial. We see that God's love is unconditional. We see that God's love is personal. We see that God's love is effectual. There was a certain medieval monk who announced to his church that he'd be preaching the next Sunday evening the love of God. And so as the shadows fell and the light ceased to come through the cathedral windows, the congregation gathered in darkness. And in that darkness of the altar, the monk lit a candle and he carried it to the crucifix. First of all, he illuminated the crown of thorns upon the Savior's head. Next, the two wounded hands and then the marks Upon his feet and the spear wound in his side. 
And in the hush that fell, he blew out the candle and he left the church without saying a word because there was nothing else to say. And how true that is even for us this morning. Calvary says everything that we need to hear about God's love for eternity. It tells us of his sacrifice. It tells us of his unconditional love. It tells of his personal interest in us. It tells of his overwhelming desire for us to be a part of his family. He loves you, and that fact should be without question when we simply look to the cross. What makes the love of God so amazing is the object of that love. Look at verse 4. It says, wherewith he loved us. The us in that phrase refers to those who were redeemed from among the lost multitudes that are described in the first three verses there. It speaks of the us who did not love him. It speaks to the us who lived in constant rebellion against God's word and his will and his ways. It speaks to the us who deserved his judgment and eternal damnation in hell. It speaks to the us who hated him but loved sin more. It speaks to the us who turned away from him in open rebellion. He loved us. And I don't know about you, when we talk about that us, I think about the part that I play. And I know my wickedness. I know my thoughts. I I know my, my desires many times. And I know I don't deserve his love. And that's the us that he's speaking to. When we were in the depths of our sin, we deserved nothing but his wrath and his damnation. He had no reason to reach out to us. He had no reason to redeem us. There was nothing in us that beckoned to him and caused him to move in our direction. Verse 5 clearly says, by grace, listen, are, are you saved by works? No, by grace ye are saved. Could you have done anything to have saved yourself? No, absolutely not. There's nothing in us that God would desire. By grace ye are saved. We're like that poor man who was robbed and he was left for dead in the parable of the good Samaritan. Religion and good works passed us by because they could not help us. But our own good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, came to where we were. He climbed into the ditch and he gave us life, paying everything we owed to God. And he lifted us out of that ditch of death and deception and depravity and doom. And he healed our sinful condition with his precious blood, forgiving all of our sins. He gave us the Holy Spirit, and he set us on the road to glory, making sure that every need was already met. He did all this knowing that we did not deserve it. He did all this knowing that we would fail him continually. He did all of this knowing that we could never repay him. He did it because he loves us. And thank God for his love. His great love wherewith he loves us. But also we see God's intervention is profound. God's intervention is profound. Notice when God's divine intervention occurred. Verse 5 says it's even when we were dead in sins. God did not wait until we improved the condition on our own. How many of you have heard somebody you've tried to share the gospel say, I'll come to church when I get my life cleaned up. You ever heard that? I'll come when I get my life cleaned up. They're never coming because they can't clean their life up. That's a work that only God can do. He didn't wait for us to reform. He didn't wait until we got better. No. He set his love on us while we were yet still dead in our sins. He loved us despite our wickedness. He reached down to us when he knew that we would not and would not reach back up to him. God's love does not make any sense to our mortal minds. I can't understand why God chose to love us. I can't understand why he reaches out to save lost sinners and delivers them from the bondage of sin and spiritual death. I can't understand why he would love the likes of us. I can't understand why he would love me, but I praise the name of God that he does. That he chooses to love us. I praise his name that he intervenes in our lives and he changes us, saving us by his grace. John MacArthur says it like this. 
If a person were driving down the street and carelessly ran down and killed a little child, he probably would be arrested and tried and fined and imprisoned for involuntary manslaughter. But after he'd paid the fine and served the sentence, he'd be free and guiltless before the law in regards to that crime. But paying his penalty before the law would do nothing to restore the life of the child or alleviate the grief of the parents. The offense against them was on an immeasurable, deeper level. The only way a relationship between the parents and the man who killed their child would be established or restored would be for the parents to offer forgiveness. No matter how much the man might want to do so, he could not produce reconciliation from his side. Only the one offended can offer forgiveness, and only forgiveness can bring reconciliation. And so, though greatly offended and sinned against, as depicted in the parable of Matthew 18, 23-35, because of God's riches and His mercy and His great love, He offered forgiveness and reconciliation to us as He does to every repentant sinner. Though in their sin and rebellion all men participated in the wickedness of Jesus' crucifixion, God's mercy and love provide a way for them to participate in the righteousness of his crucifixion. I know what you are and what you have done, he says, but because of my great love for you, your penalty has been paid. My law's judgment against you has been satisfied through the work of my son on your behalf. For his sake I offer you forgiveness To come to me, you need only to come to him. Not only did he love enough to forgive, but also enough to die for the very ones who had offended him. Greater love hath no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. Compassionate love for those who do not deserve it makes salvation possible. That's profound. Think about that. That's what God did for us. Thank God for his divine intervention. Thank God that he butted into our lives. But look secondly at the divine identification seen there in verses 5 and 6. Verse 4 describes the divine intervention and it describes God intervening in our lives to bring us to Jesus Christ by his grace. When God intervened in our lives, he brought us out of spiritual death and spiritual deception and spiritual depravity and spiritual doom. And he literally took us out of Adam and he placed us in to Jesus. Colossians 1.13 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Thank God. He is because 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all sin, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We are placed in Christ. We become the exact opposite of what we were before. Everything changes, and it changes forever. These verses we'll consider this this morning describe the wonderful changes that are suggested in the word but. That word is a word of contrast. Here Paul contrasts what we have become in Christ with what we were before we met Christ. And not only has God intervened in our lives in the lives of the redeemed by loving them and saving them for, from their lost condition. But he also identifies those who are redeemed with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in other words, when God looks upon his redeemed ones, he never again sees us like we were. You see, he sees us just as we are in Christ. He, he does not see our sins, but he sees the righteousness now of his son. He does not see us as we are, but he sees us as he is. And so when God interrupted our march toward hell and and he saved us by his grace, he changed our relationship with Jesus Christ. In our sins, we were separated from Christ. In grace, we are placed into our personal relationship with him. Notice these verses, with Christ, in Christ, or through Christ. Because we are in Jesus Christ, we are identified with Jesus Christ. What is true of Jesus Christ is true of all those who are in Christ. Where he is, they are, and what he is, they are. This passage here speaks of at least three areas in which the redeemed are identified with Jesus. First, we are identified with him in his resurrection. Paul says that God hath quickened us together with Christ. The word quickened means to make alive. 
When God saved a lost soul, he brings them out of spiritual death and imparts to them the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The formerly lost soul becomes a new creature now. That formerly dead sinner is instantly now born again. He delivered us from spiritual death and spiritual deception, spiritual depravity, and spiritual doom. And he has given life to us, abundant life. When a sinner is saved, he begins to live a new life. His walk is new, and he is, a, is made alive to the things of God. He is no longer dead to God. He's no de- longer dead to the word and to worship and to God's will, but he is now alive to God. The things that never used to move his mind now thrill his soul when he comes to live in us and we live in him. The life we live becomes indistinguishable from the life he lives. We are in him. Here's how Paul describes it in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so because we share his life, it means that tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday. Through our connection with Christ, we have have not just been given any old life, we've been given his life. And so we have been empowered to live new lives as new creatures to the glory of God. The resurrection isn't simply something that will happen in the future. Oh, there will be a day when the dead will rise. But that's already happening in our lives today. In Christ, we have already passed from death unto life. In Christ, we have already met the resurrection and the life. And we are risen from the dead already and are living in a new life for the glory of God. Just like he said to Lazarus when he brought him up and he said, "Come forth, Lazarus, come forth. What was the next thing he told him? He says, loose him and let him go. Jesus set him free from the grave clothes of sin. And he does the same for each of us who have been redeemed. When God sees his redeemed ones, he sees a resurrected people. That's right. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, all the redeemed walked out with him. We received a resurrected life as well. But also, we are identified with him in his ascension. We're identified with him in his ascension, Paul says, and hath raised us up together with him. That phrase refers to the ascension that we we saw Christ going back to heaven 40 days after the Savior rose from the dead. We know that he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. We're told that in, in Acts 1, 9 through 10. And when he hath spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Mark chapter 16, verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat down on the right hand of God. Romans eight thirty four. Who is he that condemneth? Is it Christ that, that died? Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 12 through 14. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expect until his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. I think you get the picture of what we're saying here. Jesus is in heaven and Paul says that when he ascended those who are in him ascended with him. And when Jesus ascended from the top of the Mount of Olives. All the redeemed ascended into heaven with him. I can't explain that. It's it's in the mind of God how that all works. But that's what we have done, spiritually speaking. But also we are identified with him in his position. When Paul says, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When Jesus left this earth, As we've already said, he ascended back to the right hand of the throne of God. And then we're told that he sat down. He sat down. Now, I realize that we are still in a world today that is in in that physical location. But what Paul says here is that we, too, have sat down there as well. God, who sees the end from the beginning, sees us in terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so where he is, we are. And where 
and what he has experienced, we have experienced. And when he died, we died. And when he rose, we rose. And when he ascended, we ascended. And when he sat down at the right hand of God, we sat down at the right hand of God. And when he comes for us, we will still be in him. And again, the way that Paul writes this, it, you know, it's hard for all of us to understand all that and comprehend all that. But we need to remember that we serve a God who stands outside of the boundaries of time. So he sees all of time at the same time. And he sees us where we are now. And he sees us where we, he determines that we will be when this life ends. And so he sees us as we live in this world, but he also identifies us with Jesus Christ. And when he sees his son, Jesus Christ, he sees us complete in him. We, as, as Christians, are identified with Christ in all things. The redeemed are dead to sin through the crucifixion. We're alive to righteousness because his resurrected life has been given to us. We are also exalted with him because we have been delivered from the wicked world and we have been exalted with him. We have been elevated into heaven already because God sees us as if we were already there. That's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? That's how God sees us. And that's why we are so secure in our salvation. Verse 5 says, by grace ye are saved. That is a present tense statement. It speaks of a situation that is always ongoing, church. The saints are saved today. They will be saved tomorrow. And they will be saved 10 million years from now. Because you are secure in your salvation. And besides all that, as far as God is concerned, we are already in heaven with him. All we have to do is finish the trip. And so that is why God uses the past tense to describe our identification in Christ. But notice also, hath quickened us together, hath raised us up together, and hath made us to sit together. All of these things are spoken about in the past tense because in the mind of God, they have already taken place. They're as good as done. We are as good for heaven as if we were already there because there is a sense in which we are already there with him. That's how he sees us. Our current status is viewed through the lens of our togetherness with Jesus. And so we are so thoroughly identified with Jesus that all the things that have happened in him are considered to have happened to us as well. This is proven by what Paul says in Romans 8, 28 through 39, where he starts to speak of how secure we are in Christ. No one, no thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love that passage of Scripture because it reminds us that, that all these things that we worry about, that God is bigger than those things. He's bigger than the situations and the circumstances of this life. And we can trust him with our very souls. We are citizens of heaven today, and we should live like it. Yet even while we live here in this fallen world, we enjoy the blessings of that heavenly world. Through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we enjoy the glories of heaven today. And one day we will be home and we will enjoy the glories of that land firsthand. Our present position is one of being quickened together with Christ, raised up together with Christ, and being seated together with Christ in heavenly places. But one day, church, when we finally make it to heaven physically, we will fully enjoy and experience those present realities even though we cannot fully comprehend it and experience it as a present reality today, it doesn't change the truth that it is 100% true. We are in him, and where he is, we are, and that will never change. I can't make you believe those things, but I can tell you that it will change your outlook on life when you do. I can't even explain it really well. These are complicated matters that Paul writes about here. But all I can say is hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It comes back to that but God statement that changes everything for us. And verse 5 clearly says, by grace you are saved. Someone once said, when you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. And that's true of our salvation. Brinesburg, that's true of our redemption. We didn't get here by ourselves. We didn't get here by our works. Our salvation rests solely in the grace of God. We were dead, and we could not get 
to him, but he came to us. We did not love him, but he loved us. We did not want him, but he wanted us. And it is his amazing grace that reached down into the depths of our dead, deceived, and depraved, and doomed condition. And it was his grace that saved us and changed us and identified us with Christ. And so we cannot pat ourselves on the back this morning and congratulate ourselves and say, I did a great job getting to heaven. You did nothing to get yourself to heaven. Christ did all the work. We can't look at ourselves and say, God saw something good in me and that's why he saved me. Something that he just had to have. We must humbly acknowledge with the Apostle Paul, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. But then lastly and briefly, look at verse 7. Divine intentions. Brian's word, God saves us for a purpose. At least part of that purpose is revealed in this verse. God intends to reveal the riches of his grace to us. This verse indicates that God will use the unfolding ages of eternity to reveal the extent of his grace in our lives. As I told you last week, we are trophies of his grace. We're, we're, we're trophies of God. My kids are always getting trophies. And they're saying, what am I going to do with these, Dad? Because they've got a ton of them. And I said, we're going to put them on the mantle. And we're going to display them. And that's what God is doing in our lives we're trophies of his grace, and we should live like it. We should live like those who, who understand what God did to save us, what he did to rescue us out of that pit that we were in. We need to remember what he has done to rescue us. And when the day comes when we're in heaven, we'll have eternity to give him honor and glory and praise for what he has done. But also God intends to reveal the riches of his grace through us. This verse seems to imply that while there is still saints of God living in this world, we'll display his power and salvation to the lost. Paul refers to us as an epistle known and read by men. And that's why Paul tells us that we are God's workmanship. If you're saved this morning, you're a billboard upon which God writes his love to the lost. Your life is a testimony to his saving power. So let us live like him let us love like him let us labor for him and let us do these things so that our lives might be lives that would draw others to him that others might be saved but God but God I was a lost in sin but God I was trapped in darkness but God I, I was separated from God and I was headed to an eternity in hell but God, I was under the control of Satan and I was a prisoner to my passions and to my lust. But God, I was dead, deceived, depraved, and doomed. But God, because God intervened in my life, I'm not the person that I used to be. Praise God. I'm eternally different. My life has changed and so has my eternal destiny. Because of what he did, I have been delivered from my wretched past. And I've been identified with Christ, and I'm secure in my salvation. And for that, I can thank him for eternity. But God, has God butted into your life, though? For some of you, you don't have that testimony. You can't say that you know the moment that God butted into your life, because right now you're lost. But praise God, he wants to butt into your life this morning. And he wants to change everything. Yes, you may be a kid and you may have been in church your entire life and have good parents that bring you to Sunday school and bring you on Sunday night and Wednesday night and you're here every time the doors are open. However, if God has not butted into your life and, and you haven't begun a relationship with him, then you're lost and you need to be saved this morning. And you don't just need to go through the motions of this invitation again. You need to be saved today. And how does that happen? You don't do anything to earn it. You simply accept that free gift of grace by faith. And if that's you today, I pray that you would invite God to butt into your life and to change everything for eternity. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning so thankful, so thankful that you chose to butt into our lives. So thankful that you chose to rescue us out of a destiny that was doomed. And you've chosen to place us in Christ. Lord, I've got some friends this morning, some close friends, some folks that I love dearly that I'm praying for. And they, I think they probably know I'm praying for. 
because they know they're lost. And this, this is one of those moments when the preacher is speaking to them. The Holy Spirit is speaking to them. They need to be saved today. Stir their heart right now. Help them to recognize that you are desiring to butt in and to change everything. And I pray that they would count the cost, but I pray that as they do, they would see that it's worth it. It's worth it to come after you. It's, it's worth it to live for you. And so, Lord, I pray for them to be saved today, but I know there's others today. And we just need to give you honor and glory and praise. Some of us need to come to this altar, and we need to pray about some issues that you need to butt into. Because if you don't intervene, it's not going to get better. And so help us to give that over to you this morning. Help some of us to just come to this altar. And I pray that others would come and support them and to pray over them. Some of us need to join this church family. Lord, as you speak to folks, as you move in their hearts, help them to move. Help them to take the actions that need to be taken today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today from Bryansburg Missionary Baptist Church. If you need spiritual help with your relationship with the Lord, please call 270-527-3757. Also, we would like to invite you to attend our services. On Sunday morning, Sunday school begins at 10 a.m. and our worship service is at 11 a.m. On Sunday evening, discipleship training begins at 5 p.m. with our worship service at 6 p.m. You may also view our Sunday worship services live on Mediacom Inspiration Channel 93. On Wednesday night, our worship service begins at 7 p.m. Once again, thanks for listening, and may God bless you and your family.